Thanks, Ted, for the privilege of uh, preaching here at Redeemer. If you're visiting tonight, welcome. Let me extend my welcome along with the pastors. I'm Jay Bruce, and as Ted said, I, I teach uh, here in town at JBU. Uh, our passage tonight is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to the end of the chapter. 1 Peter is located almost at the end of your Bible, so if you've gone to Revelation, that's too far. If you're at Hebrews and James, just keep going. So 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with the uh, 18th verse. Before I begin reading, I'll, I'll just give you a little background. Uh, in this section of Peter's letter, he has just said in verses 13 to 17 of chapter 2, that Christians ought to submit to all proper authorities and to give honor where it's due. Now in verse 18, Peter turns to address uh, servants, and specifically he's talking to domestic servants or household slaves. There were millions of slaves in the Roman Empire. And because it was, as one commentator says, the most common kind of employee-employer relationship in the ancient world, Perhaps we should translate servant here as employee instead. In some ways, too, the word employee communicates to us the level of skill that many household slaves had in the ancient world. They weren't just people working in the fields. They were the teachers. They were the doctors. They were anybody that really had a job was basically a slave. But of course the word employee doesn't communicate the status of slaves in the ancient world, does it? Uh, Claudius, the Roman emperor from 41 to 54 AD, developed some new protections for slaves. And these new protections actually communicate to us just how bad and awful slavery was in the ancient world. Apparently new in Claudius' reign was the idea that at least on paper a master could be prosecuted for murdering his slave. Apparently, before that, if you just had a bad day and wanted to kill somebody, then you could kill your slave. And after all, it was your property, he or she was your property, and you could do what you saw fit. A slave could not marry. A slave had no legal relationship, even with his own children, and a slave could own no property. So this passage before us in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2 addresses these kinds of people, domestic servants or household slaves. And another commentator made a really surprising point that I want to share with you. He writes, here's the passage which would have been relevant by far to the greatest number of the readers and hearers of this letter. For here Peter writes to servants and slaves who formed by far the greatest part of the early church. So in my own Bible reading, I tend to, to get to the part about servants, and I don't really pay attention. But one commentator suggests that this is where people in the congregation would have really leaned forward. Oh, Peter has something to say to us. What is it? Well, to Christ's servants, Peter offers... Christ's example, and he reminds them of Christ crucified. I'll say that again. To Christ's servants, Peter offers Christ's example, and he reminds them 
of Christ crucified. So let's look together at 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you, are, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Well, as I should have made clear, we're going to consider this passage under three headings. Peter addresses Christ's servants in verses 18 to 20. He offers to them Christ's example in verses 21 to 22. And finally, Peter reminds them of Christ crucified in verses 24 to 25. So Christ's servants, Christ's example, and Christ crucified. But but before we do anything else, let's pray and ask God to help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you pursue us with a love that will not let us go. And we pray that that same always and forever love would pursue us tonight, that you would speak through me, that you would direct our attention to your word, and that you'd bring praise and honor to our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, first, as I said, Peter addresses Christ's servants. Now, notice that I call them Christ's servants, though, let's be frank, they belonged in human terms to other people. They were their master's property. But here's why I call them Christ's servants in this context. It's because God is watching them, verse 20, and it's pleasing to God. Peter says in verse 19, it's a gracious thing when one endures while being mindful of God. God wants Christians, Christian servants, Christian household slaves, to be mindful of him. Because after all, God is certainly thinking on them. So even though in human terms they belong to other people, in God's eyes, and thus in how we should think about things, they belong to him. And to Christ's servants, Peter says that they ought to do Three things. They ought to think about three things in the context in which they find themselves. Submission, respect, and suffering. First, they, they ought to submit. Peter makes that clear. And, and think about it. It's a Christian contract with his master, his true master, Jesus, to take up his cross daily and to follow him. 
The Christian life generally is about submission, as Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, verse 35. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. So they must submit. Second, they ought to do their work out of respect. Verse 18. And they should show respect not only to the relatively kind, but also to the, to the crooked, to the unjust. Servants in verses 18 to 20 are called not to look to their masters, to, to the kindness of their masters or to the wickedness of their masters. Instead, they're to look to God alone. They're supposed to be mindful of God, verse 19. They should live, verse 20, in the sight of God. So they ought to submit. They're called to submission. And what's even harder is they're called to submit with respect. And, and third, in, in this section of the passage, third, Christ's servants should be willing to suffer unjustly. Now, one standard Roman view was that, that justice, the virtue term justice, uh, didn't have any relation, that there wasn't any relationship of justice between a master and a slave. And as I mentioned earlier, that's because the slave was, strictly speaking, the master's property. Uh, if you don't clean out your car, I may notice it. But I'm hardly going to think that you're doing your Honda in injustice. If you get angry at your dishwasher and call it a name, it would be odd if your spouse came along and said, now, come on, dear, treat the dishwasher with respect. And that, sadly, is a common Roman view that we see in the first century toward people who were slaves. Now, for many Romans, there was good reason to treat your slaves well, because after all, they were investment. But, but you could give somebody good advice about how to run their business, about how to treat their property, that wasn't a moral requirement. But notice in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter takes a very different view. Peter says clearly to servants that they can be treated unjustly, that God can look at their masters and see how their masters are treating them and say that's wrong. This was a different view from the commonly held Roman one. A slave's not an instrument of another person. Instead, a slave is made in the image of God and is himself worthy of proper treatment. As Ted Wanger said in preaching on Ephesians chapter 6 a while ago, uh, Ted noticed that the Apostle Paul treated slaves as people. He addressed them as persons. And the very fact that Paul in Ephesians and Peter here in this letter addresses the slaves means that they were part of the congregation. They were part of the Christian community. So they're, they're treated with respect and dignity. But, but let's, let's be honest here. Let, let's address a potential concern that you may have with this text. Why is it that Peter doesn't call for protests against slavery? Why doesn't he call them to revolt, to, to shake off the bondage that they're stuck with? Well, let's, let's confront this question directly. First, it's helpful to remember that Christians were themselves a persecuted minority. 
in the first century. Estimates vary, vary also, but Christians were probably less than 1% of the entire Roman population. So not only were they a persecuted minority, they were a small group, a marginal group. So they had no real political clout. And think about it. If your master had the right to kill you just because he was angry, imagine what Romans do with people, with slaves, who revolt. That's right. They get slaughtered. Plutarch described one such rebellion that broke out in the first century. It had a fairly unimpressive beginning. The, the slaves were armed with kitchen tools. That's right, initially they fought with chopping knives and spits, those rods that you hang meat over a fire. Uh, but they could fight. After all, they were slaves, but they were also gladiators. And so they won, in battle, better weapons. Roman soldiers trapped these slaves at Mount Vesuvius and were just going to wait them out. Just let them starve to death. But they didn't starve. Instead, they made ropes. This is a true story. They made ropes from the vegetation, from like the plants and the vines. They made ropes and they rappelled down the side of Mount Vesuvius and came upon the Roman soldiers like an ambush. And they totally annihilated them. But of course, Rome awoke to the strength of the rebellion and decided that these slaves needed to be squashed. And they were. Eventually, the slaves were defeated. Their most famous leader, Spartacus, was killed in battle. His body was never recovered. But some slaves surrendered. And you know what? I bet they wished they hadn't. Because 6,000 of them, 6,000 of them were crucified. From Rome all the way 100 miles to the city of rebellion. 6,000 of them. So slaves had to be careful. Attempts at gaining freedom did not go well in Rome. Well, that's all well and good, you say. That's all, that's all well and good. But what good does it do? What, what should a Christian do? If a good Christian slave does good work from a good heart for the glory of God and nevertheless meets with wicked, cruel, and unjust punishment. Peter's answer is a great answer, one commentator notes. His answer is that that's exactly what happened to Jesus Christ. That's why we turn in verses 21 and, and, and 22 to Christ's example. Christ's example. And here, let's again consider three things briefly. You wanna, you wanna, you're upset about your unjust suffering? Consider this, Peter says. First, unlike us, Jesus was perfectly innocent. Second, unlike us, he didn't respond in kind. And third, unlike us, he always trusted his heavenly father. Jesus always committed himself to the one who judges justly. Now, Peter calls Jesus an example in verse 21. And C.E.B. Cranfield points out that the word translated example denotes a copy alphabet used by children learning to write. 
or an outline or sketch requiring to be filled in or colored. And he mentions that a cognate word, a similar word, is used in Aeschylus as the print of a foot. Well, in our day, we, we learn to write our letters by tracing a pencil over letters that are dashed in outline, and we kind of draw along there. So that's, that's the picture that Peter gives here. Trace out and out, you know, darken in the pattern before you. Alternatively, given that we're told in verse 21 to follow in the steps of Jesus, we could think of, of Jesus giving us an example literally to follow. I don't know if you've ever walked in treacherous terrain. I have. And if you walk in treacherous terrain and you're not the first person walking, what do you do? You see where the person in front of you puts his feet. And if he doesn't fall off the cliff or whatever, you walk where he walks. You use his footprints as a guide for your own steps. If it was safe for him, it'll be safe for you. And that's what we're told to do here. We're told to follow in the way of Jesus. Now, we need a, a word of caution, don't we? Because we've got to be clear about what we're supposed to imitate. John Calvin remarks that it's necessary to know what it is in Christ that is to be our example. He walked on the sea. He cleansed the leprous. He raised the dead. He restored sight to the blind. To try to imitate him in these things would be absurd. But fortunately, Peter's very clear about what it is about Jesus that we should imitate. Peter says that we ought to imitate Jesus in his patient suffering. Verse 21, if you look down with me. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus is the example of how we ought to face great injustice. That's because unlike us, he was innocent. So his cruel punishment was the textbook case of a terrible injustice. We're reminded of his innocence in verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. It's, it's a language, isn't it, reminiscent of Isaiah 53 that if you were here last week, we considered. And this verse, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, uh, provides a noteworthy testimony, one commentator notes, of the complete sinlessness of Jesus by one who'd been on the closest terms of intimacy with him. Peter says he never sinned. He was innocent. And yet, verse 23, he, he was reviled. He suffered. He threatened. And he was hurt. So Peter's telling these servants, remember he's addressing servants, he's telling these servants that Jesus doesn't ask you to go anywhere he hasn't gone before. Even if you're a slave, literally a slave, Jesus knows what you've been th through, quite literally. In fact, the word beating that's used in 1 Peter chapter 2, it means literally to strike with a fist, is used in Mark chapter 14, the same exact word at Jesus' trial. The priests and elders and scribes condemned Jesus as deserving death, and then some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him. That is, to beat him. 
So Jesus is our example. He goes before us in our suffering. And he's an example in a second way. Though totally innocent, Jesus didn't revile when he was reviled. He did not threaten when he suffered. Jesus didn't retaliate. Jesus didn't retaliate. So, just think about it. That means that if you were one of the Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus, you actually could reflect on what Jesus said as he was dying on the cross and receive comfort. You remember the words of Jesus on the cross? It's recorded in Luke chapter 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You could say to yourself, yes, I crucified him, but he was praying for me. He was praying for me, even though I was killing him. Well, how is this kind of forgiveness possible? If you look at verse 23, what does Jesus do? Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that's the example that we should follow. Not walking on water or raising the dead, but committing ourselves to the perfect judge of the universe suffering pa- and suffering patiently, even in the face of injustice. As difficult as it is to say, Peter doesn't say, the kind of two pop psychology bits of advice are, get angry or suppress your anger. Just, you know, get get rid of it. Jesus doesn't give you, Peter doesn't give you either of those as evidenced in the life of Jesus. Instead, he says, look to God, the just judge. Now, you know, we, we say things like, oh, that, that happened for a reason, or I'm sure it'll all work out in the end. But do we actually have a picture of the world that makes sense of those comments? Do things really happen for a reason? Or maybe it was just a mistake. Will it all work out in the end? Or maybe it'll all just fall apart. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. was fond of saying that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I submit to you that you can say that only if you believe that there is a just judge that makes it so. Just as a reminder, in verses 21 to 22 then, we see the example of Jesus. Unlike us, he was completely innocent. Unlike us, He didn't respond in kind. When he was reviled, he didn't revile back. And three, unlike us, he always committed himself to the one who judges justly. But do notice, though, that even though Jesus is held up as our example, he's more than that. Even when Peter is talking about Jesus being our example in verse 21... For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Notice that even there, Peter is highlighting the fact that he wasn't just an example. He suffered for you. He died for you. That's what he's saying. So in verses 24 to 25, he fully considers 
Christ crucified. Christ crucified. And again, there are three things that I think we should think about when we, when we uh, consider the sufferings of Jesus right here at the end of 1 Peter chapter 2. So first, though, as I said, though he's, just, he, he's an example, he's more than just an example, that's because he was punished for our sins. He was punished in our place. Second, um, Christ's death doesn't just take away our punishment, it unleashes the power of new life. As he says, we can die to sin and live to righteousness. Finally, uh, even if we are slaves to an earthly master, Peter makes it clear that Christ is our real master. Jesus, he says, is our true overseer. He's our real supervisor, and he's our shepherd. So first, and very briefly, Christ is more than an example because he was punished in our place. And, and think about that. That's a good thing. If Peter had said, look, I know you're suffering. It's a terrible thing that you're suffering. But Jesus, you know, Jesus was better than you. And he suffered even worse than you. He was crucified. Well, that would have hardly been encouraging, would it? I mean, after all, what would the message be? Oh, slaves, cheer up. Maybe you'll get crucified. That's hardly comforting, is it? Fortunately, that's not what Peter's doing here. He's saying that, that Christ's death is not just an example. Look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And when Peter says that Jesus himself bore our sins, he's saying that Jesus took the punishment that we deserved. And it's not just our sins in some kind of generic sense. Look at the, the abrupt transition in verse 24. Right, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You have been healed. Remember that, that Peter is addressing slaves who are beaten, who are whipped. They know very well what it's like to be wounded. And, and Peter is saying, look, you may even die for no reason at all, just because your master had a bad day, but you can hold your head high. Do you know why? Because Jesus died for you. And in order to explain the death of Jesus, Peter uses the language of Isaiah 53, which we considered last week. But if you remember... Isaiah 53 makes it clear that Jesus willingly took upon himself our griefs, sorrows, our transgressions, and wanderings, and our iniquity. And we are given his peace, healing, innocence, and righteousness. But notice that Peter makes it clear that the sin-bearing death of Jesus doesn't just rescue us from punishment. It also provides for us a new way to live. We see this in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So we've been set free from God's punishment and we are even now being made free from the presence of sin in us. 
So Peter highlights in this passage two benefits of the death of Jesus and not just one. Finally, Peter concludes with another image from Isaiah 53. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Jesus is our shepherd. Now remember, Jesus being our shepherd, a shepherd's not just some uh, figure in a Christmas pageant or a little figurine in a nativity play. The shepherd was the one that kept the sheep safe from death, right? There was a, a one Scottish commentator talks about how, whereas in Scotland, they just let the sheep roam. In the Judean countryside, you would never do that because the, there's just a little bit of grass here and a little bit of grass there. There are no fences and the sheep will just walk off a cliff or they'll be eaten just like that. And so the shepherd is the diligent person who takes care of the sheep. He protects them from harm. Now, secondly, he's uh, the overseer. He's the supervisor. One commentator notes that in Rhodes, the main magistrates were actually called, they were the five overseers who presided over the good government and the law and order of the state. Now, so it's a, a term of authority in the state, and it's one that's used in the local church. In Titus chapter 1, the word overseer is used interchangeably with the word elder. And Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, addresses the many overseers in that congregation. And here the Apostle Peter makes it very clear who the head of the church is. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the overseer. He's the supervisor. So we call Ted an elder, and he is an elder. He's a teaching elder in our denomination. But, but Ted's not the head of the church. Only Jesus is the head of the church. Well, by way of closing, I'll, uh, I'll read to you a poem. The, uh, the poem was written for uh, Robert Thomas Hamilton Bruce of no relation. He was a successful 19th century merchant. William Ernest Henley, a poet, wrote a short poem and, and dedicated it to him. Now, since it's such a short poem, I'll read it to you in its entirety. You may know it. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the felt clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Well, guess what? The poem's wrong. You're not the master of your soul. You're not the captain of your soul. In fact, William Ernest Henley, the, the poet who wrote this, had his left leg amputated before the age of 40. He died at 53. Even worse... 
he lost his beloved daughter Margaret when she was only five years old. If he was the master of his fate, he'd have done a lot better in life. Now listen, I'm not being cruel. I'm just being honest. You know, atheists want us to look life straight in the eye. That's a kind of common atheistic appeal that Christians have their heads in the cloud. Well, here it is. Term holidays, term holidays, till we leave school. And then work, 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 till we die. And that was C.S. Lewis's view of life as an atheist before he became a Christian. When he was an atheist, Lewis contrasted the vastness and cold of space with the littleness of man. He said that the universe was for him a menacing and unfriendly place. And you know what? That's from a boy who, though he lost his mother, was still expensively educated at boarding schools. Now imagine a Roman slave. Imagine being Quintus Artemis, who worked in the silver mines. We, we know that he worked in the silver mines because his tombstone shows him with a miner's axe and a basket. Now guess how old Quintus Artelus was when he died. Four. He was four. Are you the master of your fate? Are you the captain of your soul? Let's hope not. But whatever your life situation, whatever boss you have, whatever job you have or don't have, whatever love you've lost, commit yourself to the one who judges justly. Follow the way of Jesus. He will not disappoint you. He died for you to give you life. He's the master of your fate. He is the captain of your soul. Even better, as Peter reminds us, Jesus is the shepherd and overseer of your soul. He will not disappoint you. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you high and lifted up, ruler of all the earth, king of God's creation, yet care for us and know us better than we know ourselves. Lord, we pray that we would, by your Holy Spirit, live a new life and follow the way of the Lord Jesus. We pray that we would rest in his death for our sins so that we're not punished but set free. And we pray that however people mistreat us, whatever kinds of sorrows that we face, we pray that we would know your heavenly favor and that we would know that we are those for whom Christ died. And it's in your strong and powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen.